Well, hello there, Inspired Minds audience. You look great. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed, as always, your gracious and your grateful host. Uh, I'm going to jump right into this one, Heather Langenkamp. Wow. Let me tell you something. Uh, I've interviewed a ton of people on this show, all walks of life, good gravy. But let me tell you, Heather Langenkamp, the screen queen herself, dying around Elm Street, ladies and gentlemen. I saw that movie, first one in 1984, I think it was, three, when it first came out in the theaters of all things, because I'm old as the hills. And it was amazing, and I loved it. And I love all that kind of old corny theater. Um, but before I get too much into what we talked about here, I because I'm a nerd... Somehow it popped into my mind that there was indeed a CD, actually it was plenty of printed on CD, it was like a record that was put out about, uh, there was a song called Do the Freddy, ladies and gentlemen, and yep, it's about as terrible as you would expect, because it sounds like this. Here it comes. It's so bad. It's like a weird Japanese sounding kind of like, like la, 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 la. anyway. Uh, apparently, it's called the Elm Street Group. How about that? And the record company was also called the Elm Street Group. Look at that, ladies and gentlemen. But yeah, Heather Langenkamp, iconic. Oh my goodness, because again, I'm a huge horror nerd. I lived for this shit when I was a kid, still do. Um, so I was super excited to do this. The dork in me absolutely came out. But what an absolutely lovely woman. Um, it turns out that she studied Russian over at uh, Stanford, a little place called Stanford originally because she wanted to be in the State Department because that was back in the 80s when Perestroika was a thing and, uh, and, and the Gorbachev and the wall. So I thought that was absolutely incredible. We talked a lot about the raw joy of fandom and what that means. She goes on a lot of these fantastic fan signing events and she's the queen as well she should be. And we really did talk about how, like, that's, like, fandom, no matter what it is, be it music, be it sports, be it film, it's like an equalizing bonding experience. And horror specifically is it's really meant to be experienced among other people, like in a giant theater. So that was fantastic. Um, she uh, She's in this really wonderful thing called The Midnight Club on Netflix right now. It's this whole series. There's a great, great role in it. Um, but I just fell in love with her. Also because, by the way, she and her husband... Are, and I found this out, they have their own special FX makeup company. They had it for like decades, and or at least a long, long time. And apparently, for those of you who have seen the movie uh, Cabin in the Woods, a very famous scene at the very end where there's like a million monsters attacking each other and there's tons of blood, she actually helped make the blood. 200 pounds, uh, gallons of it, as a matter of fact. I love it. Anyway, what a great lady. I was so excited to talk to her, as I always am. So, as usual, I hope that you... Love this as much as I did making it. Scary. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Inspired minds dazzled throng who are currently listening to the sound of my voice. Please say hello to the lovely and talented Miss Heather Langenkamp. Heather Langenkamp, say hello to the audience, please. Hello, audience. How are you today? Well done. I can hear him saying just fine already. Um, so I like to start off this, uh, every show I like to start off with the following question. I ask every single person, and that simply is, when you were young, what was the first thing that you can remember that truly inspired you? What lit you up? Was it like a song, or was it a book, or a movie? Go. 
Well, I, I was one of those kids who, gosh, I really loved um, <laughs> ballet. <laughs> I had a really amazing ballet teacher when I was very young, when I was about five years old. Um, her name was Mosselin Larkin. And, you know, you never realize, you know, who you're with when you're that young, but she was an incredibly inspiring ballet teacher. And immediately from even our first lessons when we didn't know how to do anything, you know, at the age of five, it'd be like first grade, maybe. Um, she just took us to this place that was so um, artistic and deep. And she treated us as little, you know, future artists. And so she respected us a great deal, but was also teaching us how to do ballet. And um, she was like still to this day, one of my greatest inspirations. What did she teach you though? Well, she taught us first of all, to like really respect our, our bodies. And um, I remember she had this gesture. I mean, I took ballet from her for over 10 years. So um, I, I felt like I got to know her very well, but um, she did this gesture where it was as if she was holding like a, a bunch of grapes or something above her mouth. And she said, you feed yourself. Like you have to know that you are the one who feeds yourself. Either it's good or it's bad. Whatever you put into your body, you have done that to yourself. And that sense of responsibility for your own health and for your own, you know, for like ballerinas, obviously you want to be skinny, but it was beyond just food. It was just about you know, images that you put into your body from watching movies, um, you know, food that you put into your body, uh, kinds of friendships that you have, like it's all part of your own agency. You're doing it for and to yourself. So I really, I I really have, I, I can envision her doing it right now. It was like, as if someone was like feeding somebody grapes, but it's like you're, you're feeding yourself. And, um, that was like one of the very first lessons I ever learned. I love that. I love that. And I love these questions too, because oftentimes they do kind of throw you back to a sense memory. Yeah. Right. Because. Yeah, no, you, I see it. I see it really vividly. Yeah. I see it really vividly. Yeah. Cause you know, as you know, event memory, which is the things that are happening around us kind of like short term goes away, but the event wonders are the one, sorry, the, uh, the sense memories are the ones that are stick to us because we care about them. Go figure. <laughs> exactly. Uh, magical. So then part B of the question always is, is there a through line of, from that experience to where you are now in your life and your career? Well, you know, studying ballet really seriously was, you know, it's a really strong discipline and you have to, you know, work really hard at it to be good. And um, after I moved away from Tulsa when I was about 13 or 14 and I moved to Washington DC. And there I decided to take ballet even more seriously. I went every single day from noon to five. I went to a very specialized like program. And, and, and so it really taught me like, if you want to get good at something, you have to be willing to just literally dedicate yourself to it. And so for three or so years, I was, you know, really dedicating myself to it. But eventually I actually lost a little bit of interest in it. And I decided that I wanted other things for myself. I didn't want to be a dancer. And and so pulling back from that was good, 
Um, and it allowed me to get involved in acting because one of the major reasons that I wanted to stop doing ballet was so that I could be in drama club in high school because they were doing all these great plays and they had an equally wonderful teacher um, teaching theater at my school. And so I ended up getting very involved in theater and, you know, eventually as a senior in high school, got to play the lead in the school play, which really made me realize that I wanted to be an actor. So yeah, they definitely were related and it was the rejection of one and the embrace of the other that, that, you know, that always happens in your life. You decide to try something new or, or get involved in something that's, you know, a little bit different, but also it, it was a pursuit that required a lot of discipline as well. And a lot of study. So I felt a little prepared to do that. What a, what a, I always like this question so much. It's why it's the first one. It's just so much, it's so interesting to see that through line, you know, even direct or indirect as it may have been for yours. You, you learn obviously how to take care of yourself and you learn about your place in the world, which clearly influenced your acting in some way, I would imagine. Well, and two, and I mean, it ended up being that it, when I'm in all those Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, movies, uh, I did a lot of moving and fighting and running and, and a lot of it was choreography and, especially my fight scenes with Freddie, we would choreograph all of them beforehand. And, you know, he had been trained at Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and, and, and I had had all this ballet training. So we did a lot of working out of the footsteps and how we were going to get there. And, and so a lot of those fights, I think are actually really, really well done fights, you know, things that you would see like stagecraft and things like that. Um, Robert, Robert was my dance partner for a lot of those. Yeah. I love that phrase, a dance partner, because now that you're saying that, I can see it in my head. It makes perfect sense because you're right. It is a ballet to a certain degree, right? Yeah. I mean, especially with those claws, because they're really dangerous. So he would always have these great ideas of like how he could look really menacing with the claws, but yet, you know, it, it would be, you know, I wouldn't endanger myself at all by being so close to them. And and he wanted to look really strong, like he was sometimes lifting me off the ground or throwing me around. And so basically, those were all choreographed moves that we would do. And we did have stunt people who helped us do some of the more you know violent moves. But in general, I'd say like 80 or 80% of all that fighting was just Robert and I um, you know, dancing. 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 I love that. Dancing. <laughs> You know, actually, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to jump in here uh, quickly. I do have a fan question from a guy named Danny, this friend of a friend of mine, Danny from Manoa, California, Florida. And uh, so what was your favorite moment with Robert England on the set? Ballet? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, Robert wouldn't call it ballet. He would call it like fencing or something. But um, yeah. we, uh, I do, I do think that the, there's one fight scene in Nightmare One where he uh, like bursts the pillow out. And, and, and then we kind of wrestle on the bed and then we roll under the ground and I, I turn on my alarm so that it wakes me up and, and then I'm sitting on the bed and, and then he comes back again. It's like this incredible dream sequence. And then he bursts through the mirror. That was definitely one of my favorite scenes. And then the second scene that I've always loved is when I catch him on fire. I think that scene is really, really great. And and then later in Nightmare 7, when I poke his eye out with the eel, that's got to right. be one of my favorite shots of all time. 
Well done. I have I have a whole list of my favorite shots with Robert, but yeah, they're all fun. I'm sure, I'm sure you do. I do want to go backwards for a second, actually. So I understand that you were uh, you're working at the Tulsa Tribune around 19, and then you got cast as yeah. an extra in both The Outsiders and Rumblefish while you were attending, and then when you were attending Stanford, I think, right? Then you got your first leading role. Yeah, so it was the summer between senior year in high school and freshman year at Stanford that, um, yeah, I was in Tulsa. I was probably, gosh, I think I was 17. I think I was 17. And I worked at the Tulsa Tribune as a copy girl and saw the ad for auditions for The Outsiders. And I went down there and, and gave them my, you know, they took a Polaroid. That's what they did in the old days. You would you'd give them a little res, you know, resume and then they would take a Polaroid of you. And, um, and so that was really exciting. And I got to be an extra in the outsiders. And then, um, Mm -hmm. and then later that summer they were making uh, Rumblefish as well. And I was just incredibly lucky to get a, a line and get my screen actors guild. Uh, I didn't get my card that summer, but I got my Taft Hartley letter, which means that you can join the union. And so, um, with that, once I went to Stanford that fall, I ended up going to LA on a couple of weekends that I had free. I would fly down to LA and um, the casting director from, you know, Rumblefish, she helped me get a lot of auditions. And she she kind of acted as my manager back then. And I got, I don't know, you know, a tab commercial, you know, silly things that made a little money. And then um, I got an independent film called Nickel Mountain. That was the thing that really made me realize that I could be a professional actor. What, what, what about it made you kind of light up then that like, Oh, I can actually do this. Well, I mean, getting hired is one of those <laughs> things like, you're like, Oh, like you're, you're competing with all these people. And if, if you never get hired, you, you probably should take that as a message that you're not any good or you just don't have what it takes. But um, yeah, I, I auditioned for, this independent feature. And at the time, those were very rare. It was just the beginning of kind of the independent feature era in Hollywood. And a guy from Oklahoma had decided to produce a, a, a film of the novel Nickel Mountain by um, Gardner. What is his name? John Gardner. John. And so uh, I auditioned and I got the part and I, I was surprised. And it was a really good part. And so I, you know, did my best and, you know, once you do it, you you kind of surprise yourself like, oh, I didn't get as nervous I thought I was going to get. Oh, I didn't feel as self-conscious as I thought I would feel. And and by doing that movie, I, I kind of realized that, um, you know, I was, I, I wasn't mortified, you know, because I think a lot of times people get their first job and you kind of feel like a deer in headlights, but um, I felt really comfortable and I really liked the people involved in, and, um, and so after that, I decided that I would try to pursue acting as, you know, as often as I could and go to college at the same time. So that was my plan. And so as soon as Nickel Mountain finished, I went back to college and, um, you know, and I would go down to Los Angeles for auditions whenever I had some free time in my college schedule and lo and behold, I got Nightmare on Elm Street maybe a year later after that when I was 19, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Stanford, real quick. What were you studying? Um, well, I started out studying Russian uh, Russian language and literature. I really wanted to be in the State Department and, 
that was when the, you know, the perestroika and the, it was all, you know, the Soviet Union fell right when I was in college and all of my friends. Yeah. Yeah, Gorbachev, yeah, was in power. And so a lot of folks at Stanford really thought this was, um, a perfect subject to study. And so I got really wrapped up in that for about a year. And then once I went down to Los Angeles and was in Nightmare on Elm Street, I realized it would be hard to keep up with the language requirements. So I ended up changing my major to English and ended up graduating in English, which is a perfect major for a theater student or a actor, because you read a lot of plays and you get to analyze literature and, you know, kind of delve deep into how to analyze anything that's written. And I've used, you know, I've, I've used my English degree so much um, being an actor. Makes sense. You're right. I never thought about that, that you are reading plays and you are analyzing the written word and you're kind of tearing it apart a bit. So that obviously is helpful for an actor. Yeah. And you also realize like your interpretation of the written word is, is, is legit. You know, I think, um, if you have, you know, the thing about acting that is really important and tough is you have to make a decision about how to do what, you know, the words are there and you can do them a million different ways. You know, you can say a line a hundred different ways, but as an actor, you have to actually make a choice to do it one way. And as, and especially in film, you have to do it that one way and commit to it and be very confident in it. And if the director doesn't like it, you have to be willing and able to do it another way for them. You know, sometimes the, the choice that you've made doesn't agree with the director and they don't like it. And so then you have to also be very flexible and you have to be able to say, okay, that didn't work for you. Then how can I present, you know, what you want? And, and I learned a lot from Wes Craven. Um, he too was an English, he was an English teacher at um, Wheaton college. And so we would often have a lot of discussions about, um, you know, what he, how, you know, he interpreted the, the, the script that he wrote. And I would tell him, well, I was interpreting it this way. And, and he would say, no, 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 no. You know, he would tell me, he would set me on the right path. Like, no, I don't want that. Um, but then most, I mean, most of the time, 90% of the time we would, we're perfect agreement. And that's why I got along so well with Wes. We, we did see eye to eye on a lot of things and, um, and we just had such a good time making Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. I've heard nothing but great things about Wes. I mean, I heard a lot, obviously, from uh, Marianne Madalena as well, but about Wes and about uh, about Robert. Just really great people. Really great people. And, you know, they, did, they just took what they were doing so seriously that um, now in retrospect, I'm like, when you when you have all those people really working hard towards one goal, it's hard to fail. You know, it is hard to fail. Yeah. If, and, and, and Wes was, you know, he was so single-minded in what he was doing at the time. And so was Bob Shea, the producer. And so was, so was Robert, you know, everybody and John Saxon, everybody really, they were just so earnest and worked so hard and um, so glad that it worked out the way it did. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I did want to kind of talk about, too, so about the fan world, because I so as I mentioned earlier, I uh, used to work at uh, Warner Brothers Records and I worked with a lot of bands and a lot of the bands are these massive fans, just mm. just completely passionate, um, 
they made it's just the funniest thing. I was I was the uh, the digital marketer on a lot of these bands. It wasn't really that quote unquote important, but because I was the conduit for the fans, I became sort of famous in a strange way. Um, I would go to their mm-hmm. shows, and kids would know who I am. But seeing that microcosm of fandom just lit my heart up because it was something that people kind of connect to as like this icon, be it a band, be it Freddie, be it whatever. So would you mind kind of talking a bit about that response that you've seen? I know you've seen it in the fan mm-hmm. world. I mean, I, I just was there and in uh, yeah. Philadelphia last weekend witnessing it firsthand. And I mean, there's so many aspects to fandom that, I've really, you know, contemplated and um, I made a whole documentary about fandom in my show, I Am Nancy, but um, what I, what I really, I think when I was younger, I was more mystified by it because I thought, oh, there's so many ways to spend your time. Like, why are you watching Freddy Krueger? Like, that was the first question that I kind of had about fandom for Nightmare on Elm Street. I didn't really get like the thrill that people got out of watching horror movies. And, um, and so over time, you know, people are looking for ways to pass the time that not only excites them, but makes them feel alive and that they can share with their friends. And like all three of those things need to kind of be present for, I think, fandom to take place. First, you have to kind of, it has to make you feel alive and then your friends have to really dig it too, like all your friends, not just maybe a couple of them, but, you know, a, a critical mass of your friends. And then, you know, you have to feel like there's kind of something worthy about it too. Like it's a good movie or it's a good band. And I think, you know, uh, the people that I meet, they just get so much pleasure out of it. And they're watching it with, all sorts of different people, their sisters or their aunts and uncles or their grandma or even their best friends. And, and it's this bonding experience that, you know, it's a social event. It's like, I mean, some people watch horror by themselves, but if you really ask them, they really enjoy doing it with their friends most. And I'd say music's the same way. It's like, it's great to listen to an album by yourself, but actually when you're with a group of people, it's even better. And, and it's, and it's a, it's a, it's an experience that you actually remember for the rest of your life. And, and that's the way these horror movies of the eighties were for people. I think they were just so new and unusual and they captured everyone's imagination so much that it was, it was something that there's a certain group of people that are so lucky because they got to go to the movie theater and see those movies in 1984 and, and, and have that pure, pure experience. So I think those are the most hardcore fans. And then the other, you know, you know, I do think that people just really love being close to Hollywood and like, there's so such a, kind of a mystique still about being an actor and a Hollywood movie and being close to people that have been able to, you know, work in the movie industry. There's some of that too. Um, And then there's a lot of people who are dreaming of of achieving something like that in their own lives. And they just want to kind of come and see how you did it and ask a lot of questions about, you know, what should I do and how should I get there? And, you know, wanting to be reaffirmed in their desire to be, you know, creative people in this, in this world. And 
So I, I've always loved talking to fans about their experience. And then, I mean, with Nightmare on, on Elm Street in particular, there's a lot of themes to that movie that really hit people right in the gut. And they feel that that Nancy's character helps them kind of live through a lot of trauma in their lives or helps them look at their own um, struggles in a, in a way that they can manage by comparing themselves to Nancy. And I, I come across people like that all the time too. That's not surprising in this, <clears throat> not surprising in the slightest, you know, going back for a second to watching films uh, as an experience with, you know, bands or movies, there's just, there, there's someone, there's so many great uh, YouTube videos out there of people like back in the seventies, they were showing reactions of the audiences to films such as the exorcist or such as films as, you know, these, these, uh, what was it like Carrie, I think it was. And the audiences are freaking out, you know, it's, it's 1970 fill in the blank and they're, they're, they're galvanized. They're, they're this, this one, almost just like one. Yeah. Like they're one unit. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And the same thing happens at a concert. You're exactly right. You go to a show, you know, I've always said this. I think it's funny that, um, I think it's interesting rather that when sports uh, folk, when their team wins, they say we won. Right. Like you didn't do that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. We, yeah, we won. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Which I think is fantastic. And, but I think you can also say the same thing essentially for that feeling of community of feeling of bonding. And when it comes to those things, and especially like you're talking about some of those themes and some of those horror movies and specifically in Freddie, because what you're really talking about is the unconscious and the terrifying, you know, that when we go to sleep, we can't control anything. And that speaks to these unconscious fears that we have. And now I'm getting into Freud and I don't want to, because this isn't a therapy <laughs> session. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like there, there's definitely that connection yeah. you're talking about. I don't think, I mean, I guess in previous, you know, in previous cultures and they had, they had similar situations where they told stories that were really scary that people could, you know, explore their fears, their subconscious fears. And unfortunately, we've lost a lot of that. Why do you think that is? I, I mean, I think we've gotten kind of lazy that we don't create as many stories, like outside of the movie industry. We don't actually sit down and tell stories around the campfire as much as we used to. And we don't entertain each other with storytelling anymore. And And so movies actually have filled in that gap, I believe. You are speaking my language. I'm. I'm. I, I could do a ten minute rant, hour rant on storytelling, because you're right. As cavemen, we told stories around the campfire. Is what we did, and that oral tradition continued on with, you know, stories about the Peloponnesian War and stories about famine and stories about grief and loss. And that oral tradition gets lost or has been lost, I think, to a large degree. So you're exactly right. We're not necessarily telling the stories that we used to tell. So we do find them in art, which is how you kind of find stories anyway. But it's not a, a direct, it's not that direct language, that direct contact that we have with each other anymore. Well, I mean, we we were celebrating the 35th anniversary of Nightmare 3 this weekend, last weekend That's in Philadelphia. Brilliant. And um, the, the all the all the cast from Nightmare 3 was doing a panel discussion. And it was really clear from the questions from the audience that, Nightmare 3 serves as this really great template for talking about kids who have, uh, you know, have mental illness and issues in their personal life that can lead them to really 
dire results and and that a lot of people really identify with those kids and the powers that they had and the dreams in that movie make a lot of people feel really empowered. And listening to the people, I realized, okay, this is one of the stories now that everyone's telling to actually talk about mental illness and teenagers. Like, and so not, you know, and just depression and things that lead you to doing pretty, you know, scary things. And, but it was clear from the audience that they've, you know, used nightmare three for this purpose. And, and I, I was really grateful, you know, you need some kind of story to talk about it. You don't want to just talk about it as, you know, such a personal thing. You want to be able to say, you know, like my friend did that, or, you know, remember in nightmare three when Joey did that, you know, and then it's kind of like, you're, 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 you're talking about the issue, but you're talking about it outside of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I, that you and I are in sync on that one, hundred percent. That's fascinating to me. Um, I actually do want to get into now. So you kind of, you continued on. I got to talk about the Malibu gum factory. I need to talk about that. I don't know what that necessarily is. It sounds cool. Yeah. So um, I think there was like a little lull in uh, my husband and my, you know, work life. And we, um, we, you know, we, we live in Malibu and we, we had a relationship with some Japanese businessmen at the time who my husband designs silver jewelry and, and we, and, and this jewelry was being sold in Japan. And so at the same time, I thought, well, isn't there something else that they might be interested in? Like we could create. And we decided that gum would be like a really easy thing to create because you can find manufacturers of chewing gum. And we just wanted to package it in a really cool way that maybe another, you know, especially the Japanese who love surfing, like they would really love that. And so we created this whole product basically for the Japanese market. And then it all kind of fell apart because importing gum into Japan was really difficult. Their food, you know, their food um, regulations are really strict. And so we had this great idea and yet our market kind of fell out from under us. So we decided to just do it ourselves and, and make um, trading cards of surfers. So we, we appealed to all of our friends to let us take pictures of them. And then we put their pictures on the cover of these trading cards and put all this cool information about them on the back. But it was just like the average Joe surfer. It wasn't famous surfers or pro surfers or anything like that. It was just people who submitted their pictures. And so I think we did I don't know, we did a hundred or so trading cards and we would put them inside the packages of chewing gum and sell it all at surf shops up and down California. So it was a really fun product and it was a lot of, you know, printing and, and doing, you know, design work and designing packages and having marketing plans and sales teams. And it was so much work. It was so hard that after about a year and a half or two years of really working hard at it, I, my husband and I have decided like, is this really what we want to do with our lives? <laughs> and, we, you know, we were like, looked at each other like, this has gotten out of hand. You know, this is like a hobby that we have to decide what to do with it. So we kind of just put it to bed. It was taking up so much of our time. And, you know, meanwhile, David was getting a lot of jobs. He got Cinderella Man, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. And we spent a lot of time in Canada at that time. So it, it became very tough to operate a 
gum company, a chewing gum company, um, and live in Canada and, you know, have, we had two kids at the time too. So we decided to kind of just let that slowly die off. And it's, it's, it's still my intellectual property. I still have it if ever I wanted to revive it, but it was just a kind of a slice of, a slice of time, you know, it is, you know, and I love doing it. I mean, it was really, really fun. Hey, that sounds lovely. And speaking of your partner there, uh, your husband, I understand that you are uh, that you are a partner in the AFX studio, the makeup company. Yeah, yeah. So we have a makeup effects studio called AFX, and we, uh, yeah, we do films and TV shows and commercials, and um, you know, David's been involved with this company since the '80s. His father founded the company called Lance Anderson Makeup Design and his dad and um, hired Dave to do the first movie Dave did with his dad was um, Serpent in the Rainbow with Wes Craven. And so that's how I met Dave is um, at a rap party for Serpent in the Rainbow. Wow. No kidding. And then to tell me about the, in, I'm a special effects, practical effects nerd. I love this kind of world. Mm. So how do you, do you get your hands dirty and muck up stuff? No, I mean, what would I call myself? So I am in charge of making sure the shop runs as smoothly as possible. So, um, you know, I, I take care of a lot of, of the more the personnel issues and I help. Um, I do, you know, all the payroll and the taxes and the accounting and the tax returns. I do all of the really not fun stuff. Yeah. And then David is the designer. So he's designing all the makeup effects and his team of sculptors and painters and, you know, mold makers, they're in the next room over having all the fun. But I do come in and offer my opinion on certain things and everyone rolls their eyes, but I do like have some opinions sometimes. <laughs> Are you like- it, was, it was my idea to put blood in the, uh, in the in cabin in the woods during Merman's finale scene, I was like, we need to put blood in that blowhole and call it the bloody blowhole. So that, that was, was your idea. That was my idea. Yeah. I have great you. ideas like that from time to time. You've done great work. You can go home now. You're good. I can go home now. Yeah. You're done. You've done your purpose in life. That's a fantastic <laughs> story. I love that story. You were looking at it, right? You're like, nah, that needs blood. <laughs> it needs blood. More blood. Yeah. We used a lot of blood on that show on, on Cabin in the Woods. I think there's one scene, uh, we called it the uh, Costco of death when, um, all the elevators open and like all the elevators are filled with creatures and all the creatures come out and kill everything. And I think, I don't know how many gallons, but it was like 200 or more gallons of blood in that scene. And so, uh, it was really one of the, uh, most intense, intense days on that show. (laughs) It's just getting 200 gallons of blood alone is like a lot of work. Yeah, how do you do that? Like, how does that even how does it even happen? Well, you're making blood, you know, as part of your job. So you're just mixing it all up and putting it in, you know, containers and getting it yeah. to set. And then you have to make sure you can clean it up and get it out of there. It's a mess, as you can. It's a total mess. I could imagine. I'm just, you seem to be very proficient with films with blood. Perhaps that's a theme line. Yeah, I'm good. At, uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty. I'm pretty desensitized to blood on screen now. Probably at this point, right? Exactly. Eh, whatever. I've seen it before. 
<laughs> I've seen it before, yeah. Before. So, okay, you obviously are an incredibly busy person, I can tell. So, which is why I also want to ask you about Midnight Club. Came out. Congratulations. I want to- yeah, I'm Sue. I, I, I have, I mean, I have to say, like, I, I got a little bit con- consumed with, um, you know, AFX Studio for many years. And a lot of it was because, you know, I did try to get out there and audition for roles and get myself, you know, get get myself more acting work. But there's just, just like this dead zone in your career sometimes when just nothing can happen and it's hard to make connections. It's hard to get seen. And so I kind of feel like that happened for about 20 years between when I was about you know, 35 and 55, it was just like, ugh, nothing great was going on. And, um, and so I just, you know, my, my husband and I, we just would shrug our shoulders and just think like, how can we change this? And I, you know, I, I just started directing more mental energy, literally towards the idea that I have to get another acting job. I just, have to figure out how to do it. And, um, you know, sometimes thinking about it gives you, you know, more confidence and, you know, I did go out for more parts and it didn't get very many, but luckily Mike Flanagan called me and um, asked if I would be interested in being in his new show. And I didn't realize that it was going to be you know, a 10 episode series for Netflix at the time. I had no idea actually what he was asking me to do. I thought it was maybe one episode or two episodes, but um, I got the material and I realized, oh my gosh, this is a TV series and this is one of the leads. And she's like the only adult in the show. Well, there's one other adult, but, um, and I was just floored. I didn't really think I'd ever have a part like this. So I was incredibly thankful to the universe for, um, letting me try my hand again and get down and dirty in the acting world. <laughs> Do you lose your chops over a period of time or does it come like right back to you? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if you lose your chops. You just have to find your chops again. It's like they're there, you know, they're in you. I mean, I think acting is really part of who you are. If you really love it, it's, it's like, if you love to run, you just, you just can always run. It might not be so fast or it might not look good, but um, it kind of is always in your system. I feel it is anyway, but I did realize that I had to have a really concentrated effort at like learning my lines and finding a character, doing all the things earnestly because a lot of older actors, I mean, I feel like sometimes they just walk on as themselves and they do themselves and that's, you know, really great. But this role actually asked me to play a lot of different parts. And and so that made me have to say to myself, okay, I've got four different characters I have to create for this show and let's make them all really different. Let's, let's do an accent over here. Let's make this one really evil. Like I want to have a, I want to wear tattoos on this part. And this one I want to wear like this kind of a coat and I want to walk this way. I want to have this wedding ring. I want to have this hairdo. So, you know, each character you have to really outline in your brain what you what you're trying to accomplish. So, 
it was it was great doing that. I mean, it felt so good, and I hope I get to do it again. That sounds like Soon. so much fun. Congratulations. It was. I mean, I, I hope I, I I've I've heard from people that they really enjoy the show. It's it's a totally different kind of show that than Mike Flanagan usually does. It's uh you know it's meant to have an episodic quality. It's supposed to be two seasons long. It's a you know lot of cast members. And they're all very young, so um, he he's really stretching his own wings on this one, I believe. I have to ask you, uh, how many times a week, let's say, or even a day, I'm sure you get people walking up to you going, "You look like I know you. I know you from somewhere." You get that a lot. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think I, uh, I maybe I'm disguising myself in my real life, but I live in a pretty small town, so everyone who knows me already has known me for 30 years. Right. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't hang out in a lot of places where people would do that, but it happens. I mean, once in a while it does happen. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so much older than I was when I played Nancy that I, I am finally not looking a lot like her. And, and now that I'm playing this new character of Georgina Stanton, we'll see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I, you know, I've seen current photos of you. You look identical, if you ask me, to the to the young Nancy. <laughs> That's why Thank I asked. I'm doing Thanks. my best. I'm doing my best. But you know, I really like the idea, though, that you were talking about a bit earlier about um, sort of taking your, let's say, your uh, ballet experience and how that kind of got you to the the world that you are now. And I would posit that it also gave you a sense of strength and clarity on who you are as a, as a young woman and a girl, which then carried you over into kind of this badass that you are now, if I may be so bold. Well, that's a nice compliment. You yeah. know, I think, um, I mean, I think we're all pretty badass. It's just, it's just finding the, the venue where you can be badass. I think like, I was given this movie to show off, you know, I mean, Nightmare. I was allowed to play this really great character in my own normal life. I mean, I don't think I have any instances of where I've been like that. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, one time my daughter fell in a swimming pool and like I jumped in and saved her. Like it's that kind of thing. Once in a while you get a chance to do a a brave thing or a, you know, a crazy a thing in the spur of the moment, but we don't get many chances in our real lives to be like Nancy. So, um, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm badass. I mean, I do like to, you know, I, I do like to think that I would stand up for, you know, helping a friend in need and all of those kinds of things. But I can, you know what? I can tell you're a badass. You know why? Because badasses know badasses. Because that seriously, badasses are sweet people. They're kind. They're emotive. They're genuine. I can tell already that's who you are. So, yeah. Well, that's fact, nice. Well, <laughs> well I'll tell you something really funny uh, that happened this weekend that just made me laugh so hard is yeah. that um, – so, I mean, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you're you're a badass. You're a badass. And I'm like, oh, thank you. That's such a nice compliment. But I wore this uh, shirt that made it look like I was had tattoos all over my arms and my – like it looked like I had two full sleeves and like tattoos all over my body. Yep. And um, it it's such a good looking 
real. It looks so real that people from maybe five feet away can't tell that they're fake. And so, um, and so I was wearing this shirt and people standing in line thought that they were real. And, and they came up to me and they would be like, wow, you really are a badass. And I'm like, why do you say that? She's like, well, because of your tattoos. And I'm like, well, these aren't real. And they were like, what? We thought you were badass. And then I'm like, well, I thought you already thought I was badass before they saw the tattoos. So I realized that there's levels of badass in the world. There's levels so there's, of badassery. Well, then I'm going to place you at yeah. the top and, and, and if I had full tattoos all over my body, I would be even more badass, apparently. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, we can all only aspire to be as badass as Heather Langenkamp. And with that in mind, I'm going to let you go because I know it is quite late where you are. However, here's how I like to end the show. I'm going to pretend to say goodbye. You're going to pretend to say goodbye. It's going to involve a little acting. Pull that one out. I know you can. I'm going to pretend to hang up, and then we're going to say goodbye afterwards. Deal? Okay, sounds great. Here we go. Uh, yeah, my turn. What an honor it has been to speak with you. My goodness. Oh, one last thing I do. I would be remiss if I didn't tell you this because this is just wonderful lore. So um, my sister, who is now 40, when she was uh, six, I think it was, I had this big Freddy poster in my room, a big Freddy fan. And it was him with the knives and the whole deal. She was absolutely terrified of that poster and she would come into my room and cry 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 and then like walk out i told her that i would tell you the story so there it is (laughs) poor thing you terrorized her her whole life she's like you can't tell her that story i'm like yeah i can i'm going to (laughs) so anyway i've had a lovely time now your turn to say goodbye well, thank you so much, Jeff. I've enjoyed this time immensely, and I look forward to hearing this, um, yeah, where I'm going to hear it, wherever it is. We'll get this sucker up real soon. Okay, I'm going to pretend to say goodbye or pretend to hang up. One, two, click. <laughs>